If you don't have a Bible, uh, we'd love for you to grab the Bible that's in the rack in front of you. And if you don't have your own Bible, you can certainly take that one home with you. Exodus chapter 19, and that should be on page 60 in the Pew Bible. So, if you're using the Pew Bible, turn there. Before we look at Exodus 19, uh, this is actually a perfect passage for a New Year's Eve uh, because... New Year's Eve is kind of a hinge day, right? We're all, we've all still got a little bit of the holiday hangover. Um, you know, I don't, uh, I don't know how many of you actually went back to work last week, but probably for most of you, it wasn't a very productive week. Like some people were open, some people weren't. You know, the, the time between Christmas Day and New Year's Day is like this just strange limbo where you've eaten too much, you're trying to recover, your house is a wreck. You're at my house, it's still a wreck, we haven't quite cleaned up yet, right? Um, but, but we're hinging into this new year, we've got New Year's Day tomorrow, and then everything just gets running again on January the 2nd. And in some ways, so just like New Year's Eve is a hinge day, so also this passage, Exodus 19, is a hinge passage, right? We're moving from uh, the first part of Exodus where God has rescued Israel from Egypt, He's carried them through the wilderness, and He has brought them to Himself at Mount Sinai. And this is where they will spend the rest of the book. And what in the world are they going to do at this mountain for the rest of the book? Well, they're they're going to learn how to walk with God. So they have been rescued by God and brought to God, and now God will reveal to them His law, or what it means to be in relationship with Him, what it means to walk with Him. That's what the rest of the book of Exodus uh, tells us about. And we have, right here in this passage, just kind of a brief glimpse as we hinge from one to the next. Now, we, a few weeks ago, uh, we looked at verses 1 through 6. We're going to read those again. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time there. They're very important. We devoted one whole sermon to them. I'm not going to spend as much time there, but we are, uh, are going to read them. So, let's give our attention to God's Word Exodus chapter 19. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. And there Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus, you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people 
and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their clothes and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priest and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them, This is God's word. Let's pray and ask for his help in understanding it. Father in heaven, this is not a scene that, uh, that we are all that accustomed to. There are lots of things about it that are strange to us. And so, Lord, we just pray that you would bless the reading and the hearing and now the preaching of your word. Lord, help it make sense to us that we may understand what it means to know you, to love you, and to follow you. Lord, would you, would you break through our hardness of heart and bring us new life. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so, you know that I've got a, a thing for words and how we use words. Um, it's, kind of a, it's kind of a soapbox of mine sometimes, but the word, the word awesome is, is one of those words that has been all but bleached of its meaning, right? Because, right, uh, ice cream is awesome, those shoes are awesome, and my wife is awesome, Right? And only one of those things is true. So, I'll let you guess. Um, right, we've, we've taken a word like awesome, uh, and, and by applying it to everything, it now almost applies to nothing. But I want you to take a second, think about that word, awesome. Think about even, even the word, when you say awe, like the shape of your mouth kind of tells you what 
that word is supposed to mean in your heart, to be in awe, right? Jaw-dropping, uh, speechless, uh, take-my-breath-away sort of thing, right? Awesome. That's truly something awesome is that thing which causes us to, to just stand in utter amazement. And that's what is happening right here in Exodus 19. I mean, if you, can, if you can imagine a scene that would cause you to stand in utter amazement, might it be a mountain basically turning into a volcano, right? When, when the Lord touches down on the mountain and it, is, it turns into this raging inferno firestorm, with thunder, with lightning, a loud trumpet. This is meant to inspire awe in the people who saw it. But what exactly is it that's going on here? What is, why did God put this in this part of the book? What is God trying to convey to the people who saw it? And what's He trying to convey to us? And I think it's this. God's holiness is unfathomable and dangerous to us. That's, that's really, and, and, and we're going to kind of grapple with that a little bit. God's holiness is so good that it's dangerous. And we'll talk about that, right? So unfathomable, so dangerous to us that we cannot approach. We need a mediator. We need somebody to approach for us. That's what we see happening in Exodus 19. Moses actually makes three trips up and down the mountain. He'll actually do this for the rest of the book. He kind of goes up and he comes back down. He goes up and he comes back down. In this one chapter, he makes three trips up the mountain. And so that's how we're going to look at this passage. And so Moses' first trip, God tells the people to get ready. Uh, Moses' second trip, God tells the people to get set. And then on Moses' third trip... God tells the people to stop, not go, right? So we're going to, let's, let's look at each one of these episodes. The first trip up the mountain, get ready. Like I said, we covered this in great detail uh, several weeks ago. So I'm just going to skim over it a little more broadly. It's a really important passage for our understanding, but uh, we don't have as much time to address it this morning. But I want you to notice a few things. First, God tell, reminds the people that they have been saved by His grace. All right? And this is this, is this, uh, this dynamic between God's grace and God's law that we struggle with so much. Right? Uh, the, the people in Jesus' day struggle with it. The Pharisees struggle with it. We still struggle with it. We think that in order to be loved by God... And the reason that we think this, by the way, is because every other religion on the planet works this way outside of Christianity. That if you want to be loved by God and to be approved by God, then you need to obey God's law, right? God's law earns you His favor. But that is not how God, that's not how the God of the Bible begins this relationship with Israel, right? He tells them right there in verse 4, he, he reminds them, he says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. 
And then he calls them, he, he, tells, he tells them they're people of promise. He says, you will be my treasured possession. If you remember that sermon, and if you remember the old cartoon DuckTales, right? Uh, Uncle Scrooge had his lucky dime, I think it was, it was, I think it was a dime, not a penny, right? And so of all the money that Uncle Scrooge had in his vault that he would swim in every day, right, the lucky dime stayed in its bell jar and nobody was to touch it. That's, that captures for you the idea of a treasured possession, right? God looks at Israel and he says, you are my special possession. All the earth is mine. Every nation, every culture, every people on the planet are mine in that possessive sense. They belong to me. But you, you are different. You are my treasured possession. And when you listen to my voice, when you enjoy the status that I have given you, you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. All of this is telling us that God, doesn't, God never says, and we're going to look at this again at the beginning of Exodus 20, God does not say, keep my law and you will be my sons and daughters. He says, you are my sons and daughters, therefore keep my law. God called Israel his firstborn son when he went to go get them out of slavery. God loved them before God's grace comes before his law. He goes to get them out of Egypt and brings them to himself. Okay? So God reminds them that they are saved by grace. He reminds them that they are people of grace. They are his treasured possession, though all the earth is his. And we might ask, why? Why does God lavish His favor upon one particular group of people? And that would be a good question. It's a right question. It may not be answered the way that you think. If you flip over to Deuteronomy chapter 7, Deuteronomy, you go through Leviticus, through Numbers, Deuteronomy, where Moses is preaching to the people of Israel, causing them to remember what all they've been through. In Deuteronomy 7, verse 7, Six, God tells the people why he's done what he's done. He says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Why? He says this, It was not because you were more in number. Now, in the ancient world, if you wanted to be really great, you needed to be more in number. Right. If you were I mean, if you were going to be a great nation, you had to have lots of people because usually if you had lots of people, that means you had a big army. And if you had lots of people, you had lots of wealth. Right. So you were something to behold, something to be honored and esteemed in the ancient world. And it's actually not too much different today. But God says, that's not why I chose you. I did not choose you because you were more in number than any other people. Wasn't. It wasn't because of this that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. Actually, you were the fewest of all peoples. You weren't much to look at. You didn't have anything going for you. So then why does the Lord choose? It is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers. God loves His people because He loves His people. There's no... There's no other ground other than that. God's choosing comes out of God's loving. I love my children because they are my children. 
I love my children more than your children because they're my children, right? Now, my love pales in comparison to the love of God for his people. But if you want to look for some reason underneath it because, because God's people are more, more obedient, you won't find that in the Bible. Is it because God's people are better or smarter or stronger? God says, actually, no, that's, none of that's true. The reason that I love you is not found in you. It is found in me. And there is no other word for it other than love. God loves us because he loves us. And, it, and, that, and, and you can't plumb the depths of that love. You can't get to the bottom of that fountain. You would run out of air. God loves his people because God loves his people. And there's a condition now attached to these promises. He says, if, if you indeed obey, right? And the word there is actually, if you listen, listen, right? If you hear, hear. Uh, so I said this too, right? That to, to hear somebody, and at least when the Bible uses the word hear, to listen to God, to hear God, means more than simply to hear sounds coming out of his mouth. But it means to actually do what God says. That's why, that's why the ESV translates it obey. When the Bible says hear, it means obey. If you will live into the grace that I have given you, you will enjoy these promises. That is what God tells his people. Listening matters. How you hear matters. And so I, I want to stop right here and just apply it this way. Who are you listening to? Right, as we, as we move into 2018, who do you give, who are you giving your ear to? Right, we are, we are surrounded by voices. Voices outside of us, voices inside of us. Voices outside of us, like our parents, our teachers, our friends. Voices inside of us, our memories, our past, our personalities. And all of these voices are talking to us, telling us what would be good, what would be bad, which is the right way to go, which is the wrong way to go. And God knows that, which is why he says to his people right here at the beginning of, of their building as a nation, he says, if you would enjoy the full benefits of what I have given you, you must listen to me. You must indeed hear me and follow me. I told you the story of a young friend of mine. I would go, uh, this happened on more than one occasion. He was a teenager. I would go visit his house. I know this doesn't happen in anybody else's house, but this one particular house, right? Um, and without fail, uh, while I was there, his mom would usually say, I'm not going to tell his name because you'd know him, right? His mom would usually tell him to take out the garbage. Johnny, take out the garbage. Now, um, Johnny would be sitting in the same room with his mother, and he would just keep talking to me. Uh, which did not make his mother very happy. Usually, usually that question got asked two or three more times before uh, Johnny was forced to take the garbage and go outside. Now, what, what was the problem there? Johnny was certainly hearing his mother's voice, but he wasn't hearing it. He... He was catching the sounds, like the sound waves coming out of his mother's mouth were entering his auditory canal, right? 
I'm sure his brain was processing those sound waves into... It's not like he, she was speaking a different language. He was just choosing not to hear her. So the question is, the question that we need to ask of ourselves is, who are we listening to? Who are, the, who are the voices in your life that you give the most weight to? And we do this, right? We, we discern which ones we're going to listen to, what we're going to give credence to, what we're not going to give credence to. There's this funny thing that happens when a child turns 12 or 13 years old, right? So speaking to my teenage friends now, and it doesn't, stop, doesn't seem to stop happening until like you're in your mid-20s. So, but it's a cause of much frustration, particularly for parents of teenagers, right? Um, so the way that God has designed maturity to work is that as you get older, you begin to separate from your parents, right? Uh, the Bible calls it leaving and cleaving, that at some point you are, you are designed to leave your parents' home and kind of begin your own home. But this is not a very neat and clean process because as you enter into adolescence in that joyful state we call puberty, Right, this process of leaving, uh, it's tinged with that sinful nature. So what happens to my teenage friends is uh, all of a sudden your parents, and it's almost like it's overnight, your parents become absolute morons, right? Any, and like your parents and anybody older, like they no longer know what they're talking about whatsoever. And your friends become automatic geniuses. Well, it's like, sure, these people have lived a lot of life, but what do they know? These guys over here, now, these, they, right, their voice means something, right? They get me, right? And so that's, so that's just an illustration of how this voice thing works. We begin to reject the voice of wisdom uh, in, our, in our parents and in, in those older than us and often accept the voice of folly that comes at us from our friends. And now... To my teenage friends, I'll give you a little bit of excuse. Your, your parents aren't much better, okay? They do the same thing. They just make a better mask of it, all right? So who are the voices that you listen to? Who are you heeding, to use an old word? God is saying, listen to me. Um, whether it's the model on the advertisement, whether it's uh, the, the talking heads on Fox News, whether it's your, your Pinterest feed and what all those people can manage to do with a piece of wood and steel wool, right? Like, like all of these things are speaking to you, giving you values, trying to direct you in a certain way. God is saying, my voice must trump those voices. Friends, when I look at us, when I look at us over the past year, when I've seen how we responded under political pressure and how we have responded, well, the things that we have posted on Facebook, I am not impressed. I'm not impressed with myself. I'm not impressed with us as a community. We have lost our minds. And I think the reason that we have lost our minds is because we are not listening. Or we're listening, but we're not listening very closely to the one voice that should trump all the others. Which is a reason why it would be good for us to read the Bible together in 2018. Because that's how we hear God's voice. We hear it in His Word. He speaks to us. That's what He's, that's what he's doing with Moses and the Israelites. God speaks to Moses. Moses speaks to them. If we would obey, we must listen. And the only way, the, the only way for us to listen to God is to listen to His Word. So let's 
renew our commitment to hear from God in 2018 so that we might enjoy the benefits that He has purchased for us by His grace. So, salvation by grace leads us to walking in grace. God brings us out of slavery to bring us to Himself, to, to himself in lives of worship. That's, that's the first section. That's the first trip up. It's kind of humor. It's almost humorous. Moses comes back down the mountain. He tells the people this, and they're like, yep, sounds good. Let's do it. Right? They don't even know. Right? When, so, so I want you to kind of view this as a negotiation, okay? God meets them and says, all right, guys, if you're in for it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay out my covenant for you. Right? This is, I'm, so if you'll obey me, this is, I'm about to tell you what that looks like, and here's all the blessings that are come with it, and here's all the curses that are going to come with it. You good? And they're like, sounds good. Right? They have no idea what they're in for, but they, they give the thumbs up, and so Moses heads back up the mountain, and God says, okay, now I need you to tell him to get set. So get ready, get set. Moses, uh, he, tells, he tells Moses, I want, you, I want you to go back down the mountain. I'm going to show up in, on, on the third day. On the third day, I'm going to come and meet with my people. You need to get the people ready for that. And the word here is consecrate. It's, it means to set apart for a special purpose. It's similar to the New Testament word sanctify. At its root is the word holy, which means to be set apart. So, a good example of a consecration problem. Uh, it's not uncommon. It hasn't happened a whole lot. It's not uncommon for me to come home and to find that my tools have been removed from their closet and taken out into the backyard and the screwdrivers have been used to dig in the dirt. Screwdrivers are not consecrated for digging in the dirt. They will work for digging in the dirt, but that is not the purpose that they have been set apart to. That is a consecration problem. Um, Though they can dig in the dirt, that's not what they are meant for. And so what God is telling Moses is, I need you to gather the people and get them ready by setting them apart. If we could make holy into a verb, it's almost like, I need you to holify the people, right? If we were going to make holy into a verb, that's what they must do. And right off the bat, as we, as we read what, Moses, what God tells the people, to, tells Moses to tell the people, we can't come away with anything other than the fact that this God is serious business, right? Um, when... Meeting with him takes some serious preparation, and we see at least three things mentioned. First, he says, wash the clothes, right? So, I imagine, just kind of get your frame where, where we are. These are hot, sweaty people living in a dry wilderness, okay? They're dirty, and their clothes are dirty. And water, by the way, particularly in this environment, is scarce and valuable, so if you have a choice between washing or drinking, you're going to choose drinking every time, right? Washing, doing laundry, would have been a great luxury for them. It would have taken a lot of effort, particularly if, if our conservative estimates are right and there are about two million people. That's a lot of laundry in two days' time in an environment where there's not much water. So that sacrifice and effort implies something. And that's not all, right? God also says, I also want you to block off the mountain. 
this mountain is going to be sacred space because I'm coming down on the mountain. So, and, and the warning is pretty stark. If anybody touches the mountain, human or animal, kill it. And kill it from a distance. Don't touch it. Right? Stone them or shoot them. But, right, it's not, it's not a stern talking to. It's not a timeout. It's not a steep fine. Invading God's space, transgressing God's holy, sacred boundaries is a capital crime. It's execution. It's death. That's what God calls for. Again, uh, this, this really, what this, what this is serving to do, hopefully in your mind, is bringing out this grand canyon between God's holiness and our unworthiness to approach it. That's what's happening here. God is saying, you are so unworthy to, uh, to approach my holiness that if you even touch a rock on the mountain that I'm going to be on, you are going to die. That's how serious this is. And again, think about the effort that this would require if you're a parent constantly calling your children like, no, no. I mean, it's, it's like, uh, it's as if there's a, a four-lane interstate in your front yard with no guardrail. Don't go out there. Don't touch the mountain. Come away, come away, come away, right? If you're a, if you're a shepherd uh, and you're, you're having to keep all of your animals to make, like you're watching them diligently to make sure they don't go on the mountain, they don't, they don't graze there because then you have to kill them. You lose the animal, the effort involved. And then finally, he tells them to abstain, abstain from sexual relations. Now, listen, marriage is God's design. It's given to us before sin ever enters the world. So when God tells Moses to tell them to not go near a woman, it is not because something is wrong with God's design. It is not because sex is dirty. It is not because it goes against God's nature in fact, it is good, it's very, much a part of, it's, it's very much a good gift that he has given his people. The reason that he says this is because Moses, right, God knows that even good things that he has given can be a, stra- a distraction from the best things. And so they can be withheld for, in special circumstances, right? So that's what's going on there. So all of this ought to be coming together to make the point that God means business. God is serious. He's serious about himself. He's serious about his own glory. And that it ought to take some serious preparation to get ready to meet with him. And this kind of offends... That kind of, that's kind of offensive to me. Is it offensive to you? Right? It offends our modern sensibilities. We, we very much like uh, because, and I say that because we're not used to this idea of royalty, right? And being, you know, bowing the knee to a person simply because he has a robe or a crown on. It's kind of what makes America, America. And so we like this very democratic notion that God doesn't pay attention to what we're wearing or what's in our bank accounts, right? Like, just as I am, without one plea. This idea that we can come to God however we are and He accepts us. And that is true. God does not play favorites the way that we do. And yet, God does not want to be taken lightly. And I think sometimes we use this truth 
to excuse our laziness. God does not want to be taken lightly. Right? If I'm, if I'm just going to run to Walmart and grab light bulbs and bananas, then, you know, I'm just going to throw on the sweats and a ball cap and run out there and, and come back. But you better believe that if I'm taking my wife out for dinner, she expects a little bit more than sweatpants and a ball cap. Or to heighten it even more. I don't know, at this point, she might just take the sweatpants and a ball cap if it meant dinner. Um, but to heighten it even more, let's say you get a call from the President of the United States. He says, hey, Matt, uh, I need you to come by my office on Tuesday. I want you to swing by the Oval Office Tuesday at 11 o'clock. I'd like to speak with you. Yeah, what am I, what am I wearing for that meeting? Coat and tie. Probably a suit. Right? Why? Because the person with whom I am meeting is worthy of that honor. It's not about, it's not about outward appearance. It's about worth. That's what's going on in all of these commands. It's not saying that God is concerned with clean clothes. But He is concerned with worth. In fact, that word worship, the English word worship, comes from an old English word pronounced worth-ship. That God is worthy of our best. He is worthy to, uh, for us to bring what is important. And we spend time and effort and money on things we believe to be worthy, right? There's a reason Walmart is not worthy of my coat and tie. Because it's a store and I'm getting bananas and light bulbs, right? Not worthy, okay? My wife, worthy. And in a different sort of way, the President of the United States, worthier still, right? I am putting on, like I'm going to spend some effort to get ready to meet with him. Because he is worthy. Now I realize the whole democratic notion, he puts his pants on one leg at a time. I get that. But his office makes him worthy. And we're not talking about a man here. We are talking about the creator of the universe. Now listen, we will get ourselves ready for anything. We get ready to run a marathon. We get ready to go camping. We get our kids and our houses ready for Christmas. But where do we get ready? Uh, where, where are God's worth and worthiness, His weightiness, obvious in your life. When you, look, when you look at the way that you do the ordinary and the extraordinary, where is God's worthiness evident in your life? Do you ever get ready to meet with God? It's why at the beginning of a worship service, we try to take a few moments to prepare ourselves to acknowledge that what we're doing is a little bit different. We're not just taking out the trash. We actually believe that we are meeting with the God of the universe. And if that's true, then we ought to spend at least a little bit of time getting ready. Again, outward appearance isn't the point. God doesn't love a necktie more than He loves pajama pants. Okay? Right, that's not what is being said here. The point is that God wants these people and us people to understand His gravity, His weightiness, His, His glory. 
which he is about to display to them in astonishing fashion, right? The big day arrives, get ready, get set, stop. The big day arrives. You've probably been woken up by a fierce storm in the middle of the night, maybe a thunderclap that shook your windows. I dare say most of us have not been awoken in our tents by thunder, lightning, a firestorm, and a trumpet blast. Right? But that's what, that's what greets the Israelites the morning of the third day. What's happening? The creator of the universe is touching down on his creation, and creation cannot help but respond. Right? The creation is responding to the creator as he comes down in holy fire. And so, of course, what do the people do? They tremble, right? That would be a right response when you see what they are seeing. Notice also there's this loud trumpet blast and it gets louder and louder and louder. What's that all about? I think of, uh, I think of the, uh, the Disney cartoon of Robin Hood when I, in, in the 80s when I was a kid, right? And when King John comes out, they have the trumpet, the, the trumpet players who tell the arrival of the king. That's what's happening here. This loud trumpet blast is announcing the arrival of the king. So all of this is creation responding to its creator. And we've said this before because fire keeps coming up in Exodus, but, but fire is a symbol for God's unapproachable holiness. It's how God appears to Moses. Uh, it's how he will appear in the tabernacle at the end of the book. But right here in this untamable, raging inferno on top of the mountain, uh, we, have, we have a great view of God's Holy glory. And I want you to think, think about fire for a second. It's good. So much of what we have, we couldn't have if there was no fire, right? Fire is good. It's necessary. It cooks food. It gives warmth. It brings power, right? Even the electricity we have now is caused by combustion, right? So fire is good and necessary. It's also dangerous. You touch it. You walk into it without any kind of assistance or cover. It will burn you and it will kill you. And so fire is a fitting symbol for God's dangerous goodness. I can't help but think about Mr. Beaver from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe as he's telling the Pevensey children about Aslan, the great lion. And he tells, he tells them that he's a lion. And Susan says, oh, I thought he, he was a man. I, I shouldn't want to meet a lion. Is he safe? And Mr. Beaver says, who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. And that's what we see here in this fire on the mountain as God's holy glory touches down. This symbol actually goes all the way back to Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve rebel against God, choose sin. Uh, they are ejected from the garden. And what does God place to guard to guard his presence, to guard the way back into the garden in his presence, he places a, a warrior of light, a cherubim, with a flaming sword that turns every direction, right? Fire guards the presence of God. And so this, this highlights the idea, brings into, into huge relief this idea that God is not manageable. He is not domesticated, right? And so when the people gather at the foot of the mountain for their meeting with God, something is wrong. 
right there. They're kind of brought up short. This is the stop part. And Moses is called back up to the mountain. So this is his third trip. And look in verse 21. The Lord says to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. Now this sounds very similar to what we've already done. And that's what Moses thinks, right? Moses says, um, you already said that. We've already done this. The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai. You yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said, go down and come up bringing Aaron with you, but don't let anybody else come close. Why does, why does God repeat himself to Moses? And it's, it's obvious it's, that Moses is kind of put off by it, right? Moses is kind of like, um, we already did that. Like you told us, you warned us already. And it's, it's this thing in our nature that we kind of feel like once we've met all the requirements, man, we're good, right? In fact, there's this notion there of maybe a little bit of, of laxity on the people. Like, all right, I got clean clothes. Uh, I've abstained, right? Uh, everything's good. Can I just take, kind of take a peek? Like, can I crawl up onto the mountain and take a look at God's holiness? Right? And, and, and what's going on here is God is saying our holiness is nowhere close to God's holiness. Follow all of the prescriptions that you like, as good as they are, yet we are still tainted. We are still wrong. And so the answer from the mountain is not, all right, you're good, come on up. It's stop. I'll speak to you from here. Which leaves us in a pretty desperate spot. I mean, if, if even my best efforts aren't good enough, then how can I walk with a holy God? How can I be in relationship with a God who, if I draw close, is unmanageable, not domesticated, good but lethal God? There's a separation between me and Him. How do, I, how do I bridge that gap? Did you notice that one man is allowed to approach? Moses. And it's not because Moses is more prepared or holier than anyone else. Moses has gone through the same rituals that everybody else has gone through. But Moses is the mediator. He's the one who's been chosen by God to represent the people. And so God, as unapproachable and lethal as His holiness is, in His mercy allows Moses to approach. Moses, as it were, brings the people before God. And brings God before the people. And the same is true for us today. If we are to approach a holy God, as unworthy as we are, we need a mediator. Later on, when the tabernacle is built, and then after that, when the temple is built, there will be a curtain, a long drape, thick drape, that separates the holy place where sacrifices are made, where the priests work, and the most holy place where God's presence dwells. And no one is allowed to go through that curtain, except the high priest, one time a year, to make sacrifices for the people. And he must follow a very careful ritual in order to do that, or he dies. Separation. No approach. 
And then comes Jesus. Described in the book of Hebrews as the better high priest. The perfect man. He's the best man. No one was ever more worthy to enter into God's presence than Jesus because Jesus is God in the flesh. He makes humanity divine. If anybody is worthy to approach, surely it's the Son of God. But Jesus is not led into the temple. Jesus is led outside the city with the criminals and the outcasts. He is cast out like I deserve. He's cast away from the presence of God, which is what sin deserves. That flaming sword of God's holiness that guards the entrance, it falls on Jesus. And then something awesome, truly awesome, happens when Jesus dies. Mark 10:38 tells us that when Jesus breathes his last the curtain in the temple, the curtain of separation between a holy God and unholy people is torn right into from top to bottom. Jesus opens the way. Jesus is the mediator. And by His death and His endless life, we can finally approach the holy. And that's good news. Do you believe it? Let's pray.